Hello, and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great, Episode 18, Out of Luck. So, today we begin the journey home. Alexander's troops had had enough and refused to march any further, and after sulking for several days, Alexander gave in and ordered the return march. But of course, it would be a long journey back. The first stage of this journey will be covered today, as we begin to take Alexander down the Indus. So, first things first. Alexander got together a fleet, well, a series of transports and galleys, on the Hydaspes. The plan would be to sail down the Hydaspes until it connected to the Aesines, then sail down that until it connected with the Indus then sail down that. Now, Alexander was quite interested in where this would lead him. He noticed that there were crocodiles on the Indus, and the only other place he'd seen these creatures was on the Nile. So, Alexander believed that he had found the source of the Nile, the Indus. Obviously to Alexander, the Indus flowed south into a desert, where it lost its name and emerged by the Ethiopians and Egyptians, under the name of the Nile. Now, this is just as correct as Alexander's belief that if he carried on marching east, he would soon reach the outer ocean, and then it would be a short trip from there to the Straits of Gibraltar. The locals soon told him that this was completely wrong, that the Indus entered into the Indian Ocean. I can't be too harsh on Alexander, though, it wasn't until the 19th century that the source of the Nile was discovered. So, around this time, Coenus, the man whose speech we recounted last episode, died. Alexander gave him a magnificent funeral, and then summoned his companions and Indian envoys. He made Porus king of all his Indian territory. I think Alexander must have given up on his plans to rule India and settled for placing as much of it as he could under the control of a vassal. Now, plans for the expedition really began in earnest. Alexander may be going home, but he was going to fight his way there. He split his force into three. One would be led by Craterus along the right bank of the Hydaspes. A much larger force would be led by Hephaestion on the left bank, while a small force would go down on the river itself under the direct control of Alexander. Nearchus was made admiral of the fleet. You may well remember me mentioning early on that Nearchus was exiled by Philip II, and Alexander recalled him upon coming to power. I said he would be involved much later. Here we are. Insert a cliché about time flying here. Alexander offered sacrifices, and then the return march began. He marched quickly, reaching the Aesines on the fifth day of the march. He soon met hostile forces. Alexander was eager to reach the territory of the Malians and the Oxidraci, who, according to Curtius, could muster a force of over 100,000. Alexander wanted to reach their territory, before they could prepare for him. 
Alexander led a force against the Malians after reaching the Aesnes, sneakily marching against them from a waterless region. The Malians were completely unprepared. Many were unarmed and outside of the defences of the town. They offered no resistance, and most were killed. He was able to place the town under siege, without most of his infantry, who soon arrived. Alexander then launched an attack. All the defenders were killed. Perdiccas had been sent against a nearby town, but this one had been deserted. He tracked them down. While some managed to escape, most of the Malians were killed. Alexander soon chased down and captured the towns of other Malian forces, before advancing on the principal Malian stronghold, as most of the Malians had fled there. But once again, as soon as news of Alexander's advance reached them, the settlement was abandoned. Alexander chased after them at such a pace that he left his infantry behind, moving on with just his cavalry. The Malians had massed on the far side of the Hydraotus. Arian says that they were 50,000 strong. So, Alexander charged against them, darting across the river. The Malians fled, but upon realising that Alexander was without his infantry, they reversed and charged on Alexander. He struggled, but managed to hold up while waiting for the infantry. And once they arrived, did the Malians either A. stand and fight, or B. flee to the nearest town? If you guessed A, you would be completely incorrect. Of course they fled. Alexander of course chased, and of course Alexander killed many Indians, and of course Alexander placed the town under siege. As the day was almost up, he waited until the next day before beginning the assault. Alexander led one section of the army, while Perdiccas led the other. The Malians fled to the inner defences of the town. As there were no defenders on the outer walls, some of the men of Perdiccas's division, who were slower than Alexander's, thought the town had already been taken. Once they realised this was not the case, they began assembling ladders, and began working on sapping operations. Alexander couldn't wait, grabbed a ladder, and decided to begin the assault of the inner city. He was followed by three people. The four of them made their way to the top of the walls. Alexander was the first one there. He began forcing the Indians back, but Alexander's luck was about to run out. He famously led his charges, but this time it would go wrong. His men looked up and saw that their king was alone. They flooded onto the ladders, but too many men on the ladders forced them to break. Alexander and his three fellow soldiers, Piusitas, Leonatus, and Abrias, were trapped. The Indians refused to approach Alexander, but he was the target of every marksman. Realising he was a sitting duck and wasn't accomplishing anything, he leapt from the walls into the fortress and into the melee. He placed his back to the wall and cut down a party of Indians who rashly charged, then cut down some more. Eventually, 
the Indians backed off and formed a semicircle around him, hurling every missile at him they could. By this time, Piusitas, Leonatus, and Abrius finally caught up to Alexander and fought in his defence. Abrius was shot and killed. Alexander was shot. His armour penetrated, and his lung was pierced. He continued to fight, but soon suffered a violent hemorrhage. Pusitas and Leonatus guarded Alexander, who was almost unconscious due to loss of blood. Needless to say, things were not going to plan. The Macedonians outside of the town were panicking. They knew their king had dived into combat, and their ladders were destroyed. The men tried everything they could to get to Alexander. Some men drove stakes into the clay walls and tried to pull themselves up the walls, while others tried climbing up on each other's shoulders. Those that made it up the walls slung themselves down the other side and saw Alexander lying on the ground. They let out a cry of grief and a shout of rage. They may have refused to follow him across the high faces, but they still loved him. Soon a fierce battle was raging in the town. The Macedonians determined to protect Alexander's body with their lives. The men outside forced their way through the gates. At first a few, but soon a flood. Every single defender, man, woman and child, was killed. Alexander was led out of the city upon his shield. His condition was critical, and everyone was convinced the death of their king was at hand. The arrow was cut out of him with tremendous loss of blood. Alexander fainted again, checking the hemorrhage. Alexander was kept under medical treatment. However, a rumour quickly spread around the camp that Alexander had died. Morale plunged. What would they do without Alexander, their brilliant general? They were in hostile lands with deadly tribesmen, trapped by impassable rivers. The army was soon convinced they were destined to die there. There was no hope. Once Alexander heard of the state of his men, he couldn't let this go on. At the first opportunity, he had himself carried to the Hydraotes. He and his troops assemble at the point of the Hydrotes and the Aesones. He ordered the awning over the stem of his ship be taken down so everyone could see him. The troops believed they were being shown Alexander's body. This changed once he raised a hand to greet them. The response was instantaneous. The men cheered. Many burst into tears. His guards brought him a stretcher, he refused it, and mounted his horse. The men applauded so loudly that the neighbouring glens re-echoed the noise. He dismounted near his tent, and the men saw him walk. They crowded around him, touching him. Wreaths and flowers were flung at him. Like I said, they still loved him. Remember? You can find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com Hey, if you like the podcast, why not like us on Facebook at 
facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast. Subscribe to us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash the history of podcast. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the history of pod. Join us on Tumblr at the history of podcast.tumblr.com. Got a question? Send it to me at the history of podcast at gmail.com and I'll be sure to reply. Don't forget, you can also plus one us on Google Plus from a link on the website. If you want to support the show, then there is a great way to do it. I have a link to Amazon on the website, and it doesn't cost you anything extra to use Amazon via the link, but I'll get a small cut of whatever you spend. I like it as it means you can support the show while you shop, and each week I'll recommend something that I like. Anybody who knows me well will know that for the last two weeks I've been obsessed with a trilogy of books, reading the three in under five days. Today, I'd like to recommend to you the first of these. The Hunger Games. Winning will make you famous. Losing means certain death. In a dark vision of the near future... Twelve boys and twelve girls are forced to appear in a live TV show called The Hunger Games. There is only one rule. Kill or be killed. When 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen steps forward to take her sister's place in the games, she sees it as a death sentence. But Katniss has been close to death before. For her, survival is second nature. May the odds be ever in your favour. The book has received praise from Stephanie Meyer, Stephen King and Harowitz, and the New York Times to name but a few reviews. And a film is about to be released. If this wasn't enough, I have a link to the ancient world as well. To the trained eye, it's easy to spot that the fictional country of Panem is Sparta. The Capitol's treatment of the districts is Sparta's treatment of the helots. And to the more casual observer, names such as Caesar, Sinner, Claudius and Plutarch are a clear hint. Thanks to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join me next time, when we continue Alexander's homeward journey.